Again, I'm glad you're here, and these are two very, very important weeks for our church, but more than just for our church, for your family members, for your friends, for people that you know, people that you work with. And uh, today I'm starting a a two-part series that's going to lead us right up to Easter, and uh, I'm going to talk to you straight out of the Gospels, what Jesus said, really about our influence, how that God wants to use us, how that, you know, there's this part of us that we don't fully understand, we don't fully engage in, I think, at times because we don't fundamentally understand the role that we're to play and the influence that we're to utilize as followers of Jesus. So I'm glad you're here. We're simply calling uh, the series Influence. And uh, I want you, as we get uh, started this morning, to seriously consider this for just a moment because a lot of times maybe you look at your life and you just say, I'm not a very influential person. I I have very little influence, and I think the majority of people that I know way, way underestimate the influence that they really have. The truth of the matter is you have influence in the places that you are a part of. Uh, You may not know it, but you probably have much greater influence at the place where you work than what you think. Uh, influence them on some of your friendships, maybe within the context of your family, maybe the school that you're at, maybe uh, in settings that you're engaged in where a lot of people know you. A lot of times you may look at your life and you may say, well, you know, I'm not that influential. But the fact of the matter is, when you really look at the Bible and how God wants to use us, we've got more influence, most of us, than what we really do think. Our passage for today and then for next Sunday, again, is taken right out of the Gospels. It's some of the most important words that Jesus ever uttered. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to go ahead and dive into three incredible verses. And I want you to deeply think through these verses over the next few moments. And I hope that they'll go beyond these few moments that we have together. You're going to see them on the screen. Uh, Three verses out of Matthew chapter 5. So let's take a look at them. This is what Jesus said. Pay very careful attention to the language. Uh, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under what? A bowl. They don't do that, Jesus said. That just doesn't make any sense. Instead, they put it where? On its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way... Let Jesus, this is Jesus now, let your light shine before men. Same way. By the way, when Jesus made this statement, they got it. I mean, every one of them, they did not have the sophistication and the technology that we have certainly uh, today. And nobody could go over to a light switch. Nobody could click on a lamp. When the sun went down and their homes, very, very meager homes, would get dark, they would light a candle. They would light a lamp, as it were. And Jesus would say, nobody had light a lamp to light up the whole house so people could see where they're going and then put it under a bowl. No, they put it on a lampstand. And then Jesus said, and again, they would have captured this. They would get it. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see the good that you do, the good deeds that you do, and that they may praise your Father in heaven. Now, when I read those verses again and again while working on this talk, I was reminded just how absolutely blown away I am by a connection that maybe we haven't thought a whole lot about. In fact, I I don't know if I've ever segued this together before. Maybe I have, and I just forgot that I have, but I don't know that I've ever thought it through as deeply when I take into consideration this reality that what Jesus said about us, remember the very first word of that first verse, verse 14? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. 
And that's mystifying to me in this regard because that's actually the identical phrase that Jesus used to describe himself. In fact, I want you to look on the screen at this next verse. This is John chapter 8 and verse 12. Again, it's Jesus, and he's speaking to the people. It says he spoke to the people once more, and this time he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. And Jesus knew that the world was filled with darkness. You won't have to do that because you will have the light that leads to life. Look at this very next verse. Again, Jesus uses this description that he utters concerning us. He uses it of himself. In John, the very next chapter, John chapter 9 and verse 5, Jesus said, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And friends, I just thought about that again and again. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And then Jesus is saying, But there's coming a time, in in fact, in essence, what Jesus is saying is this. As long as my feet are making tracks on this planet, I'm the light of the world. I'm here, and I'm the light of the world. However, there is a day that is coming, a day that is coming when I am going to vacate this earth. I'm returning to heaven, and when I go back to heaven, my followers are then going to become the light of the world. It's like Jesus is saying, while I'm here, right here, right now, I'm the light of the world. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But again, there's coming this time when I'm going back to the Father, I'm going back into heaven, and I'm not going to be in this world like I once was. I will through the Holy Spirit, but not as I was in physical form. And I was the light of the world, but now you are here, and you are the light of the world. You have a responsibility under me to be light. Now, you know, a lot of times uh, people have read this verse or this series of verses and have thought, well, I don't really get the light thing. I mean, what, is, what does that really mean? And we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit. And uh, here's a guy that uh, was confused uh, in more ways than one. Actually, it's a story about a couple of very stressed out factory workers. And they're talking one day about how tough things were and how stressed they were and how they needed a break and they wanted some time off. And so one of the guys, he says to a female worker there, he says, well, I know how to get some time off from work. And uh, she responds back to him, well, how do you think you're going to be able to do that? He proceeded to show her. And what this guy did, a uh, stressed out worker, he climbed up into the rafters and he started hanging upside down from the top of the rafters. About that time, the boss walked in, saw this guy hanging from the ceiling, and asked him, what on earth, man, are you doing up there? He said, this is what he said. He said, I'm a light bulb. I'm a light bulb. And the boss looked back at him. Obviously, at work, the boss looked at him and said, "Guy, I, I, man, I think you need some time off work. So the man jumped down and walked out of the factory. The second worker, the lady then, she began walking out too. And the boss stopped her and asked her, said, well, where do you think you're going? Where do you think you're going? Leaving the factory. She said, I'm going home. I can't work in the dark. <laughs> Just something to think about. How many of you think both of them needed a break? But Jesus didn't say, I'm a, you know, I'm a light bulb and you're going to be a light bulb. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I'm going to be the light of the world. But when I go back to the Father, at that point in time, you are going to become the light of the world. And I want to dig in to these words from Jesus for the next few moments that we have together. And we'll just sort of piece by piece, part by part. And then in the next portion, before we wrap up, I'm going to get very, very practical in this teaching that Jesus gave that day. Let's start at verse 14, all right? 
Here it is up on the screen. Let's all of us read it together. Help me out, everybody. Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And that's true. Many of you have seen that before. I can remember a number of years ago, I went snow skiing with a group of guys out of the church, went out west, and uh, one night we had gone into town, I think, to eat. And just being down and looking back up into the mountains where we were actually staying and skiing during the day. And I can remember standing out in the parking lot and just looking at this especially huge mountain that was in the distance. And scattered across this mountain were, were well-lit homes, numerous homes, well-lit homes. And just thinking, man, that is, a, that is a tremendous sight. How beautiful is that? That entire mountain is lit up with these, these homes. And I just sort of took that in and observed it. And Jesus is saying, you know what? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And I think when Jesus said that, he is saying to his followers, just take, all, uh, take a look at everything that is around you. And I think, friends, any time that we do that, we see the darkness that Jesus addresses. I think anybody with open eyes and any level of discernment can look around and notice this encroaching darkness, this escalating depravity at every turn that we look. And then Jesus would look at us and say, all right, obviously you're surrounded by a lot of darkness. This is a dark world that you are in, but I've given to you. Think about this. This is what Jesus would say of you and me. But I've given to you a sufficient amount of candle power so that you may be able to give light to the very people that I want you to give light to. I'll address this later. Jesus is not saying, uh, you know, individually I want you to change the world and you're going to be able to do this all by yourself. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I have placed within you a sufficient amount of candle power and it's going to be enough to light up the realm of influence where you are. You're going to be able to maximize your life, your light-giving potential, and you're going to make some dark places light. And none of us lights, I don't think, utter darkness. How many of you have ever been at a place where you've said, literally, I mean, you could not see your, your hand in front of your face? How many of you have been, some of you are saying, yeah, right here in the theater, right where I'm, no, 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 not now. Uh, but you've really been in a place where it was so dark that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was just that dark. And you may be intrigued by that for just a few moments, but, but you don't want to stay at that place very long. Of all of our kids uh, our son, True, our, our middle child, our second son, he just detested darkness. I mean, he is a small boy. He just, he hated darkness. At night, there had to be a nightlight. There had to be light. He could not sleep in a dark room. He did not want to sleep in a dark room. He did not like dark places. Uh, some of you maybe have heard me tell this story. I maybe have shared it here before, how that uh, one day I came home, and I heard somebody back in our shower, in the master shower, and I thought, well, that is strange. Jairus isn't home. I wonder who is using our shower. And so I walked in that direction. And the closer I got to the master bath, I could hear Drew. And again, he's just a small kid, and he's, and he's just singing. He's singing energetically, and he's in the shower, and he's happy, and he's getting clean. And I just thought how fun it will be, knowing his fear of darkness, to just play a little trick on him. And so I, I walked into that bathroom, and I shut both of the doors. This bathroom, by the way, was in the interior of the home. There was no external windows. 
No windows at all. So when you shut the doors and you turn the light out, it was as dark as Egypt. You literally could not see your hand in front of your face. So he's singing, and he's happy. And I quietly moved in, and I shut one door at this end of the bathroom, and I walked over, and I shut the other door, and I walked over to the light switch, and I said to myself, self, I said, Jeff, this is going to be so good. This is going to be so funny. This is going to be so wonderful. I wonder what he's going to do. And I reached my hand up. And I flipped the lights off. And much to my surprise, he just kept energetically singing. He was happy. He is happy. And I'm thinking, he's healed. He's cured. He's delivered. Something has gone on. And then it's like, no, it's not that. He's washing his hair. That's what he's doing. He's got his eyes closed because he's watching his hair. And I thought, I'm just going to see how this plays out. So I stood there, and I patiently waited, and he's singing, and he's singing, and he's washing his hair, obviously, when all of a sudden, the singing stopped, and immediately, I heard him screaming, I'm blind, I'm blind, oh, God, please, I am blind. I thought, this didn't quite go the way I thought that it would go. It wasn't, it's funny for him, it's still funny for me, but it wasn't as funny for him. But nobody likes darkness very long. And we're in a world, I don't have to convince you, that is extraordinarily dark. And Jesus is saying, listen, you obtain your light from me, and I want you to light up some very dark places. Use your influence. Don't allow your light to be hidden. Don't let that happen. Jesus said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But there's coming a time I'm leaving. And when I leave, you, even 2,000 years later, he's saying to you and me, now you are the light of of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Look at the next verse, verse 15. It's here on the screen. These, uh, Jesus goes on, and again, they register with this. It's resonating with them. They've all done this. He said, no one lights a lamp in their dark house and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on the lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. Who would? As Jesus says, it's, it's nonsensical. Who would even bother to light a lamp, a candle in a dark house after the sun goes down and then just cover the light up. Nobody's going to be able to see. It's darkness. No, somebody who is a well-thinking person, who is a serious-minded person, would light the candle, light the lamp, and they would not put it under a bowl, but they would elevate it. They would not hide it. They would heighten it. Not under a bowl, but they'd put it up on the lampstand. And, And Jesus basically is saying that you and I have the same option with our faith, with our commitment to Him. It's like Jesus is saying, you've got two choices. You can take your faith, you can take your connection to me, and you can go completely underground with it, or you can exercise your influence in the places where it needs to be felt. And all of us live with this reality every day. We talk ourselves out of being a bright light in the surrounding darkness. It's like, well, you know, I'm not really going to speak up, and I'm not really going to tell people who I am, who am I connected to, and they're not going to know I'm a Christian, and I'm not going to invite them to church, and I'm not going to share Jesus. I'm just going to keep it to myself. I'm just going to take my light, and I'm going to take my realm of influence, and I'm just going to put a bowl over it. It's just going to stay as dark as it was before I even came into the room. And Jesus said, you can do that. And that's one option. Or he said, you can take the light and put it up on a lampstand. 
I've thought about this so often, and I've thought about it a whole lot this week, how that I wish that I had the opportunity to sit down with each and every one of you and just have this dialogue that would be centered around this idea. I'd love to be able to just sit across a table, and while you have, you're having your coffee, because I don't drink coffee, I'd have my half and half tea, and I would just, I would want to ask you, I would want to say, hey, tell me about your unchurch, your lost friends, people in your life that are far from God. Tell me about your family members. Tell me about your friends. Tell me about the people you have built relationships with at work or at school. What is their story? Tell me about your friends. Hey, tell me their names. Who are they? Who are they? Give me their names. And, and then I would, after having heard that from you, you know, in that setting, I'd want to speak up, honestly. I would want to give you a challenge. And I would want to say, obviously, you're surrounded. You've got this person in your life. You've got these family members. You've got these friends. You've got these people that you work with all of the time, these people in your life that are far from God, that are not connected to Jesus, and uh, they matter to you, obviously. And I would challenge you to increase, to maximize your light-giving potential. And, friends, this, this is a serious problem for otherwise uh, conscientious Christ followers. Because a lot of times we just say, you know, I, I can't do that. I, I can't really, you know, I'm best keeping my light sort of shielded. I'm, I'm better keeping my light under a bowl. And again, we underestimate how God can use us. And we just say, how can God use somebody like me? I'm, I'm so weak. Why, why would God try to use somebody? like I don't even see how that's a possibility. Or I'm too timid. Or, you know, I feel insecure. I, I've got all of these imperfections in my life. How could God use me to influence the world? And I, I would just say to you, friends, you always have to come back to what is a fundamental reality and say this about yourself. I must remember that I'm representing Jesus, that my source of light actually comes from him who is true light, and he's not asking me to change the whole world by myself. He's not individually asking me to, uh, you know, turn around the whole world. What he's simply asking me to do is to bring some light to the people within my realm of influence, among the people that I work with and go to the gym with, and know in my family, in my neighbors, my friends. And Jesus just makes this abundantly clear. And again, friends, on that day when Jesus gave that, this talk, you're the light of the world, city set on a hill cannot be hidden. No one's going to light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, it's going to be on the lampstand where it gives light to everybody that is in the house. That's verses 14 and 15. Now look at the next verse, verse 16. Now he says, in fact, read it. Let's all read it together. Make your light shine so that others will see the good that you do and will praise your Father in heaven. Keep that up for just a moment, guys. I've read this passage a countless numbers of times, but it really spoke to me like never before while working on this talk for a part of this series that's leading us up to Easter. And I just looked at that. I'd look at every word. I just wrote, made notes. What is God saying to me? What do I sense that Jesus is trying to communicate in this passage? Make your light shine so that others will see the good that you do and will praise. It doesn't say, it doesn't, you see the language, it doesn't say, and then you're going to be able to praise the Father in heaven. It is this idea that they will be able to praise your Father in heaven. The good that you do is your influence. People can look at your life. They can observe your life, your maximized life-giving potential. And then one day, one day, we hope, we pray, we believe, that one day they too will tilt their head toward heaven and, it, and in knowledge and will worship the same Father that we worship. 
and we love and we serve. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, whatever you do, don't take your life and don't put it under a bowl. Don't hide it. Hide it. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that, that I can do that. And you just put it up there for everybody to see. And you're not claiming that you're perfect. And you're not claiming that everything is always right in your life. And you're not claiming, you're not boasting. You're not being, you know, uh, sanctimonious. All you're doing is just saying, the light that I have, that Jesus has given to me, I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to let it be seen. And we really need to be clear on this. When this passage says, this verse says, when Jesus says the good that we do, the good that we do, we've got to be clear on. He is not saying the good that we do is what is going to get us uh, into the splendor and into the never-ending light of heaven. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, it is authentic evidence of having true life in Jesus. See, you and I are never going to get into heaven on the good that we do. That is not what Jesus, we got to be clear on this. That is not what Jesus, Jesus is not saying, do the good works that you do. Do the good deeds that you do. Do what you do. The good that you do is going to be what's going to get you into heaven. That is not what Jesus is saying because that would be the antithesis of everything the Bible teaches. It would be the opposite of what Jesus gave his life because, again, friends, we are not going to get into heaven. We are not, not, not going to get into heaven because of any good that we do, we're going to get into heaven because of the goodness that God did when he sent Jesus into the world and the goodness that Jesus did when he bled and died on a cross. And that's what causes us to gain entrance into heaven. You and I are not going to get into heaven on the basis of anything that we do. We're going to get into, the heaven, into heaven on the basis of what Jesus, what Christ already has done on the cross for us. Do we do good? Absolutely we do good, but we don't, get into, we don't do good to get into heaven. We do good so that people will see evidence of real life and light in us and cause them to tilt their head toward heaven and say, there must be a God. And if God has changed them, if God has transformed them, if God has demonstrated his love toward them, if they can live that kind of life, then maybe there's hope for somebody like me too. And so Jesus, in the last verse of this passage, again, let's just listen. Make your light shine so that others will see the good that you do and will praise your Father in heaven. Now, I want to get really, really practical for the remainder of this talk and three steps. And we'll just sort of start at the sort of the base level and just graduate, just sort of escalate in terms of importance, maybe in terms of ease to more levels of difficulty. And I want to do it with a series of three questions. The first question you're going to see right up here on the screen. Here it is. Are we known because of our love? Are we known? Remember, people are going to see the good that you do and will one day glorify your Father who is in heaven. And it just causes us to ask ourselves some very serious questions. Are we known because of our love? Can I just pause right here and ask you a question? How do you recognize a truly transformed person? How do you? How do you recognize a truly transformed person? Is it because of the Christian T-shirt that they wear? And we just say, oh, that's an amazing T-shirt. That's a Christian T-shirt. Therefore, they are deeply devoted to Jesus. That is evidence of a truly transformed life. Just look at the T-shirt. Do we do it based on their selection of music? Oh, I've heard them listen to this music, therefore they're included. Or I heard them listen to that kind of music, therefore they obviously are excluded. I mean, is that really, really how we recognize a transformed life, but the T-shirt somebody wears or the selection of their music or their own self-description? 
or maybe their head knowledge or Bible knowledge, and we say, okay, that's, how many of you, let me ask you this, how many of you have ever known, how many of you have ever known somebody that knew more Bible than they practice? You ever known anybody like that? How many of you, you know more Bible than you practice? Okay, it's a little tougher to raise your hand on that one, isn't it? But truly transformed life, is it just head knowledge? Is it the ability to point out lesser Christians, people that, hey, look at them, you know, obviously they're not living as good as life as I am. I mean, is that an indication of a truly transformed life? Is it a name dropper? Hey, I know so-and-so, and I know so-and-so, and I know this person, this person, therefore, you know, I'm in the same league. Is that really what a truly transformed life looks like? Not according to Jesus. A transformed person, according to Jesus, is somebody who genuinely loves God and genuinely loves other people. That's a transformed life. Somebody who sincerely loves God and legitimately loves other people. Paul is a great church leader. You know this. Most of you do. And he made this crucial statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And now look on the screen at verse 13. Let's read this verse together. He said three things are going to last forever. What are those three? Let's read it together. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Three really big deals, Paul is saying. These things are so important, so important. These three things are going to last forever. Faith. How many of you would agree? Faith is important. He said faith is a really important thing. In fact, it's so important it's going to last forever. Hope. How would anybody want to live their life without hope? Nobody would want to live their life without hope. It's a really important thing. And Paul would say hope is so important it's going to last forever. Love is so important. And then Paul says, you know, when you stack these three side by side, you know what's the most important one of the three? It's love. It's love. David Leem is a New Testament a scholar, and this is what he has said. He said, spirituality is not measured by manifestations, but by love. Listen to that again. Spirituality is not measured by manifestations, but by our love. Please listen, friends. Please. Let me get your attention on this. Just because we think that we are a loving person does not mean that it is so. Perhaps it would be wise to get input from those who know us best. Because sometimes we feel like we're extraordinarily loving people. But if we were to sit down and ask, is I, am I as loving as I really think that I am? We might would be slightly disappointed in what we heard in return. I can remember a long time ago, Audrey, our youngest child, on front row. She's 18 years of age now. 11 years ago, she's, she is seven, obviously, at that time, if my math is correct. I think it is. And as kids do, she had crayons, she had some paper, and she's just drawing, and she's writing, and she's intently into this, and she had done this so many times before. I have no idea what she is coloring, what she is drawing, and she gets through with it after a good process of time, and she hands it to me. Audrey, you probably doesn't, you don't even remember this, baby, but she walked over and she handed it to me, and on it was a picture of two people holding hands, they're standing on a hill, there's some, you know, white puffy clouds, and the sun is up in the corner, you know how kids draw these pictures, and so there's two people holding hands together, and I'm just sort of looking at the picture, and I'm trying to see, okay, what is she drawing, and uh, I said, Audrey, is that mom and me, and we're holding hands, standing there on that little hill, she said, yes, daddy, that's you and mom. And you're standing, holding hands. So I looked then at the picture a little more closely, and I noticed that in my other hand, 
there was this black, it was sort of square, two rectangular shaped object, and I'm just standing, you know, like holding hands here, this object in my other hand, and then it dawned on me. I thought, oh, man, that's so beautiful. And I said to her, because I wanted, I guess, to hear her say it. I said, now, Audrey, what's in Daddy's other hand? Would that be Daddy's Bible? Is that Daddy's Bible? She said, no, Daddy, that's the remote control. In my mind, I was Bible guy. In her mind, I was remote control guy. So we may think that we are demonstrating extreme amounts of love when we may not really be that loving at all. So are we known, first of all, because of our love? Secondly, and again, graduated, escalating here, taking a step up, are we intentionally meeting needs? Are we intentionally meeting needs? It's so easy to minimize our candle power by reducing our depiction of Christianity down to like what we think it is and and just that. So a lot of times people say, okay, this is what Christianity is to me. Christianity means that I'm basically a good and an honest person. Yeah, that's what it is. Christianity means I'm a good and honest person. But it doesn't stop there, okay? Christianity, you know, in addition to being a good and honest person, it means I'm going to love my family. So I'm a good and honest person, and I love my family. But Christianity, we, again, this is how we play it out. But it's, it's, it's broader even than that. And Christianity, as I'm a good and honest person. I love my family, and I even go to church. I go to church, maybe not every occasionally, frequently. I go to church, therefore. But I don't even stop there. I'm not only a good and honest person. I not only love my family. I not only go to church on occasion, but I'm a hard worker. I'm a hard worker. And we just, again, we're just minimizing our candle power potential. And we're reducing Christianity down to something that we can wrap our mind around. And you say, okay, so Christianity, I'm a good and honest person. I love my family. You know, I go to church on occasion. I'm a hard worker. I'm even, and we might would even say in this season, and I'm even a registered voter. And, okay, that's what any good Christian would want to do. Can I just stop here and say, by the way, have you noticed how crazy politics are right now? Anybody notice this? It's just insane. But I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, I'm not even going to vote on Tuesday. And I'm like, why? They said, everything is so chaotic and so confusing, I don't think I'm even going to vote. And I said, are you kidding me? You're not going to vote for because of that? I said, we've got a great right. We've got, I mean, how many people in other countries would love to have the freedom to be able to vote? And people are going to sit home? I don't think so. And I just said, really? You still. And I, I encourage you. I encourage you. Maybe you just said everything's so chaotic. And I, you pray about this. And you, you read up on the issues. And you ask God to give you wisdom. And you go out. And you exercise a freedom that God has given us in this land. God has given us a freedom. But again, you know, going back to our equation here, we reduce Christianity now. I'm a good and honest person. You know, I love my family. I go to church. Uh, I'm a registered voter. I'm, uh, I'm a hard worker. I'm above average in terms of morality. And basically, you know, we basically just reduce Christianity down to that and said that, that is indicative. But the early church followers of Jesus defined life in the kingdom of God in much broader terms than that. 
In fact, I don't want to say they would laugh because that sounds a little bit insulting. But if we just said, hey, I know I'm a good Christian because I'm, you know, good and honest and, you know, love my family and work hard and I go to church and, you know, I vote and uh, I'm above average in morality. They'd just say, really? Really? Is that it? They saw it completely different. They firmly believe that legitimate Christianity looked more like this. Look at this. This is out of Acts chapter 2. It says, among them, our early brothers and sisters in Christ, those in, in the first and second centuries, really, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Look at this last verse. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anybody as they had need. And this is true. When you start reading about our early followers, you know, the early followers of Jesus, our brothers and sisters in Christ, they were not only concerned even with meeting needs in the Christian community, but in the community and reaching out to people of other faiths as well. Some time ago, I picked up a book. It was a heady kind of book. That's why I struggled with it, called... Uh, the Reason for God by Tim Keller. And there's three paragraphs out of this book. I want to read to you really quickly. He says that in the Greco-Roman world, in that world's religious views, it was open and seemingly tolerant. So everybody in that context had his or her own God. The practices of the culture were quite brutal, however. He said the Greco-Roman world was highly stratified economically with a huge distance between the rich and the poor. By contrast, Christians insisted that there was only one true God, and that was the dying Savior, Jesus Christ. Their lives and practices were, however, remarkably welcoming to those that the culture had marginalized. The early Christian mixed people together from different races and classes in ways that seemed scandalous to those around them. The Greco-Roman world tended to despise the poor, but Christians gave generously not only to their own poor, but to those of other faiths. In broader society, women had very low status, being subjected to high levels of female infanticide, uh, forced marriages, and lack of economic equality. Christianity, though, afforded women much greater security and equality than had previously existed in the ancient classical world. During the terrible urban plagues of the first two centuries, Christians cared for all of the sick and dying in the city, often at the cost of their lives. Why would such an exclusive belief system lead to behavior that was so open to others? It was because they functioned with this idea. Christians had within them their belief system, the strongest possible resource for practicing sacrificial service and generosity and peacemaking because at the very heart of their view of reality was a man who died for his enemies and prayed for their forgiveness. Reflection of this could only lead to a radically different way of dealing with those who were different from them. It meant that they could not act in violence and oppression toward their opponents. And you would ask one of these early followers... In the century or so, right after Jesus, I mean, is Christianity, you know, being good and honest, you know, loving your family? Is it going to church? Is it being a hard worker? Is it being a registered voter? Is it being above average morally? They just say, oh, no, it's, it's much greater than that. It's so much bigger than that. You got to meet needs. You got to help others. And again, the choice is ours. We can take our light and we can put it under a bowl and live with a fixation on what we need and what we want, or we can set our light on a lampstand and serve and help and intentionally meet the needs of other people. All right? Escalate. Move up. Graduate. Are we known for our love? Are we known because we're a person that means? Remember what Jesus said? They're going to see the good that you're doing, and it's going to cause them to one day praise and serve your Father who is in heaven.
Third and final question, most important of them all. Here's the question. All of us need to ask ourselves this question. Are we helping people to find their way to Jesus? Are we helping people to find their way to Jesus? Numerous times in Jesus' ministry, he'd be asked this question, sometimes very, very strongly, sometimes very negatively. People would ask him, what is your mission? Why are you here? What is your purpose? And although Jesus was a very loving person, in fact, there's nobody else that has ever lived that put on a clinic like Jesus did in loving people. His love was perfect in every way, yet Jesus never said that I'm here on a mission of love. He did it, but he never declared that to be his mission. Nobody ever met needs the way that Jesus met needs. Prior to Jesus or since Jesus, nobody, I mean, you just think about it. He would go about and heal the sick. The Bible says he went about doing good and healing all manner of disease. He heard, healed every form of sickness, and he would feed hungry people, and he would cause demon-oppressed and possessed people to be delivered. He would even on occasion raise people from the dead back to life. Has anybody ever met needs the way that Jesus met needs? And the obvious answer to that would be no. Nobody loved the way that he loved nobody met needs that he the way that he met needs but Jesus never said my mission is to love and to meet needs you ask him what his mission was and here's the mission that Jesus owned he said my mission is so clear I've come to help people to be reconciled back to my father I've come to seek and to save in fact I want you to read this last verse with me everybody right up here on the screen this is Luke 19 10 read this one louder than any of them previously for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. That's why he came. He said, I, you know, I'm going to love, but that's not why I came. I'm going to meet needs, but that is not my mission. I came to seek and to save the lost. And then Jesus said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But when I leave, you, 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 you. You're, you're now the light of the world. And you love people. And you meet the needs of people. And you help people to experience the greatest thing that a person could ever experience. It's relationship with the Father. And this is so serious for us. And again, we reduce Christianity down to almost an embarrassing fashion. And we just say, okay, that's it. But it's bigger than that. I'm so challenged by this. I wanted to approach it a little bit differently this year than we've done on other Easter. I I feel this so passionately. I don't know that I've ever anticipated an Easter like I am this year, two weeks from today. It's why we've made all these invite cards available to you. We just said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have thousands of them printed. I've already taken a stack this morning because I don't want them to all get away before I have the stack of the people I'm giving them to. And I took a stack and I put a rubber band around it and I put it with my stuff because I've got places where between now and Easter I'm going to be passing out these invite cards. I didn't mention this earlier, and I apologize for this, but if our guys, somebody had just turned on the light for just a moment uh, I'm sorry I didn't mention that earlier, so I'm catching you unprepared. But if you would do that, that would be, that would be helpful. Somebody had grabbed that light. Thank you so much for doing that. 
So we've got all these Easter invite cards, all right? And these, and just take a bunch. You've got two in your bulletin, but there's a lot out at the information table. And you take your own stack. Now, here's, here's what we need to know. There's another card, and this is what I want you to see. Reach inside of your, reach inside of your bulletin, and there's a card that simply says uh, influence or prayer card. Influence prayer card. And I want you to take that out. And you're going to take it. We're not going to fill it out here. You're going to take it with you. But I want you to be real, real clear about what, what we're going to do. See, you need one of these. You need one of these, but you need a lot of these. I've got people that I'm working on right now. I've told you I'm more passionate and more excited about this Easter than ever in my life. And I'm going to do everything that I can. I've got these relationships that I've built because I want to love people and I want to help people. And uh, believe it or not, I go into more than just one restaurant. Yes, I'm in Chick-fil-A six mornings a week. That is a fact. And Jesus is validated. But I go to other places too, and I've built relationships. And I try to tip well, and I try to talk to them. I ask them about, and so I've got these relationships, and so I've got a stack of these cards. And I'm going to start giving them to these people I've built some relationships and some friendships with. And I'm going to invite them to come and be with all of us two weeks from today. I'm going to tell them, and it's printed right there on the card. That little, on the front it says, Victory Church Easter in 3D. And on the back of it, it has our, our service times. Three one-hour services, 8.45, 10, and 11.15. And I'm, I'm going to say, hey, for some people, I'm, I'm actually going to say, hey, I've, I've been to your events. I've come to your stuff. And some things that I've gone to that they've done, it's made me a little bit uncomfortable, to be quite honest with you. But I love them, and I want to help them. And Jesus went into places that wasn't his first choice because he cared about people. And I'm going to leverage some of that this Easter. I'm going to say, hey, you remember? And I want you, I was there, I want you to, Come to our church, and I'm going to give them these cards. I'm going to be looking for you, and I'll meet you. Tell me what service you're coming to. And I've already had some people that have committed to that. They're, they're saying to me, I'm going to be there. I'm telling you. And you know how people say, I hope the roof doesn't fall in and all that kind of stuff. And I assure them it won't, but I want them here. Now, this card, this one is for us, the Influence Prayer Card. I'm praying for, if you look on the back, and you see a verse that we've used today, you should be a light for other people. Live so that they will see the good things you do and will praise your Father in heaven. Luke 15, 7. We're going to talk about this one next week. And then underneath, I will pray to God who loves lost people and use my heaven-sent influence to invite the following people to join me on Easter Sunday, March the 27th. Now, this, this card, this brightly colored card, it is for them. This is the one we're giving away. This card is for me. This is the card that's for you. It's the people that we're inviting. It's the people that we built relationships with. All my friends at the gym. People that I built relationships with at restaurants and other places of business. That I'm writing their name down. And they're going to get one of these cards. And I'm going to be praying for them every single day between now and Easter. How many of you know that powerful things happen when people pray? They're going to... They're going to be moved. I'm telling you, we're going, to, we're going to look at the three dimensions, three sides of Easter. I'm not even going to get into that. I want you to anticipate it as well. But I'm telling you, if you get unchurched family members and friends here, people that are far from God, by now you know we're not going to embarrass you or embarrass them. Or I, Frankly, I don't want to embarrass myself. So we're not going to do anything strange or weird or goofy. We're going to worship. I'm going to give a talk straight out of the Bible about the three sides of Easter. And we're going to pray and we're going to believe people are going to trust Jesus to be their Savior on Easter. But you know what? They're not going to be here if you don't get them here. So don't just come by yourself. Do like I'm going to do. 
Bring some people. Put a lot of these cards in people's hands. And then you take your card, this prayer and influence card, and the people that you're inviting and the people that you're praying for. You keep that card. You keep it handy. And every day, some point in the day, maybe more than once in a day, you just pull it out and say, God, I'm praying for you. And you just go right down the list. I've invited them. I'm trusting and I'm praying that when they come, that they'll open their mind, they'll open their heart. All right? Let's do this together. Will you stand for our closing prayer? Next week is going to be an amazing week for us. I want you to be sure that you're here, everybody. We're going to go to another teaching of Jesus. It's very fascinating passage of Scripture where he gives three stories very intentionally, back to back to back. And there's a clear message in that stories, in those stories for us. So, Father, we thank you for this day. And we just pray that you would help us not to just talk, not to just say, I'm a Christian, not just wear our T-shirts, play our music, be a good person, go to work, do all these things. But, God, we would see that you want us to be known as people as love, of love, and you want us to meet needs. And you want us to help people to be reconciled to you so that they will know and love you the way that we know and love you. And we'll one day be able to go to heaven and spend all of eternity with you as we will. So help us, God, to give you nothing less than our best. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Love you, everybody. See you next Sunday.